Be seated. Good morning. It's good to gather with you to uh, worship um, our Lord. As you uh, may have noticed, um, some of the folks leading us were different today. Thank you for those of you who helped. Nathaniel and Leanne are up in Skull Valley. Everybody say Skull Valley. Wouldn't it be fantastic to be in a town called Skull Valley? So Nathaniel and Leanne are there this morning. Nathaniel is preaching um, the last of three messages, and that church will then be uh, voting on whether or not to invite him to be their pastor. So as you are uh, thinking about them today, be in prayer. So that's a major decision for them. Uh, Today we are continuing in 1 John, so if you would like to go ahead and turn there, we're going to read several different sections of 1 John together this morning. Uh, This is the third and and last series uh, talks of essentially serving as an introduction to all that we're going to spend the rest of the fall on together going through this book. Um, Last week we considered together uh, the change that the gospel brought in John's life. And today I'd like us to consider uh, some foundational truths that really drive everything in the book. Every single one of us has... Uh, what we might call foundational beliefs. We have ways that we think about how the world works, ways that we think about what's true and what isn't true, ways that we factor through our days that drive how we think about everything else. These worldview beliefs make sense of our lives. And some of those beliefs we hold are true. And hopefully as we're growing and maturing, we find that some of those things we once thought were true, we no longer see as true because God has changed our minds about them. The book of 1 John is written on a whole series of foundational truths that he doesn't just come right out and talk about. Instead, they form the the foundation that the things he does say are built upon. And some of those foundational thoughts are extremely different than what our culture would tell us is true. And so some of what John will say is very, very, very hard to swallow. For example, in the coming weeks, we're going to see John say, if you say you believe this, but your lifestyle is this, then you're a liar. That is not the way we talk to each other, is it? It's not. So That's incredibly different than the way our culture would tell us life works. Our culture would tell us, you can believe this and do this, and that's no big deal. And so it's going to be easy for us to simply dismiss some of what John says if we haven't considered the thoughts that are underlying why John would say that. And so what I'd like to do today is sort of walk you through some of the thoughts that John has that form the foundations of belief that he held. And hopefully that can help us set up the other things we're going to talk about in the book. Now this sermon, I'll tell you from the front, from the outset, is um, not one that you can tune out for five minutes and then check back in and it's going to make sense. You've got to hang with me the whole time and we're going to do some hard thinking work today. Are you ready for that? Now, some of us are used to coming into a sermon and just 
uh, tuning out for massive periods of time. And is that true? Yes? Especially for Nathaniel. Nathaniel's over there saying. All right. So you are free to do that, but you're not going to catch what I'm saying if you do. Uh, this is a meaty, in-depth message, and I hope that it will be helpful to you. But I'd like you to really consider deeply and analyze your own thoughts in light of what John says. So let me try to set up the scenario for you that John was in, and then we'll look at some of the thoughts that he had. John was, as we've talked about, one of the 12 disciples, and he wrote 1 John to a whole group of churches in what is now Turkey. So at this point in history, they called it Asia Minor. This letter was likely written to the same churches that are talked about in Revelation 2 and 3. So the book of Revelation was written to a group of churches. John wrote that one too. And he was probably writing to that same group. Now tracking down the reason or occasion for a letter in the Bible is a little tricky. Why would that be? Any guess? Anybody like Jeopardy? All right, a few of you. You are weird people. <laughs> Jeopardy gives you what? The answer, and you've got to guess the question. That's what you've got when you think about the letters that are in the New Testament. We are given the answers, but we don't necessarily know the questions that were being asked. And so we've got to track back through the evidence in order to figure out what was going on and what were they speaking to. Why did he give these answers? So it's a little bit like Jeopardy. All the evidence would point to this as being the situation that John wrote to. Sometime after John wrote the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same, same John wrote that one. Problems arose in the churches that were under John's care. And John at this point is an old man. He's living in a town called Ephesus. And he's writing to try and encourage the people left in the churches that were under his care. Christianity at this point is well established in lots of cities. Everything in the book of Acts has already happened. All the other disciples are already dead. And so John's writing as an old man to encourage people left in these churches. Some people who had been in those churches had walked away. So people had gathered together, proclaimed to be believers, and then some of them had just left. They walked away. They said, I no longer believe the same things. Joining a church is like being born into a family. It's a big deal. It's a commitment. You don't just leave. If there's problems in the family, you stay and you work them out. And if you do decide to leave, it better be for substantial reasons. So John's writing to people who were left in the church and others had walked away. Sometimes people leave churches because God has set it in their hearts to plant another church or to depart and help revitalize a church that's dying. That's a really good reason to leave a church, isn't it? If God's sending you out to help encourage or to start another church, that's a fantastic reason to leave. Sometimes people leave churches because they don't want to submit to the Bible. They find this church, I don't necessarily mean this one, but a church they're in is, begins talking about things that make them uncomfortable, and they don't like it, so they go. 
Is that a good reason to leave a church? It's not. Other times people leave churches because they find that that church is calling them to live out their faith consistently, and they don't really want to do that. They want to show up on Sunday and then leave. Is that a good reason to leave a church? No, obviously not. In John's context, apparently this group of people began to believe and teach dangerous, incorrect spiritual ideas. And so these people had left the church because their beliefs were now so different that they could no longer fit. And if you'll read 1 John carefully and slowly, you'll see what those false teachers had come to believe because John speaks to them. And so if you were to sit down at one setting and read the letter and know that that was the context, here's what you'd notice. These people came to believe that Jesus wasn't the Christ, that he wasn't the Messiah. They came to believe that Jesus was not God and man combined in one person. They came to believe that his bodily death wasn't necessary for salvation. And they claimed to have some kind of private or secret knowledge that led them to a better Christianity. And that better Christianity enabled them to be perfect, to live sinless lives. And so what the church had gathered together and heard and affirmed and believed, these people were now saying some of those essential tenets weren't true. They claimed that behaviors, what you do with your body, doesn't really matter because spirits, spiritual stuff is good and your body is bad, your material. So what you do with your body doesn't really make any difference at all. It just matters what you believe spiritually. So that group of people had departed. They'd left the church. And now the rest of the church, well, let me just ask you, if, and we can't put a percentage on what happened then in terms of the number of people, but if let's say a fourth of us came together and said, we no longer believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God and man, and really what you do with your body doesn't matter, it just matters what you believe, and we've got the real truth, and so come with us, come, come to the deeper, better ideas. And if you affirm those, then your life will be a whole lot better. If let's say 40 or 50 of us began saying that and just departed, just trusted, what would that do to the rest of us? What do you think? It would discourage us. Disillusioned with what? Okay, so we might start questioning our own beliefs and being disillusioned with what we've thought was true. What else? Angry at? Angry at them. Okay. Anything else? Sad. Yeah, we'd have lots of different emotions, wouldn't we? So those are the people that John's writing to. These groups of churches that had had swaths of people that they'd loved, they'd lived in community with, they'd respected, they'd looked up to, they'd affirmed as brothers and sisters in Christ, who now said the very core that you're building your life on is wrong, and I want to tell you the truth. Friends, that's called false teaching. It's not a phrase we use much today. 
And there's a reason why. I'll talk about it in a little while. But there's plenty of false teaching today. There are ideas that are out there that if you buy into them are harmful to you. They're not true to the scriptures. They're destructive. I made a list of eight. Now, we're not going to talk about them, but I just want to raise the issue to show you that this still happens today. There are people who would profess Christ. In other words, they would say, I'm a Christian. And they would agree with one of these things. Here they are. God is fine with your sexual behavior as long as it's consensual. There are plenty of people that would tell you what you do with your body doesn't matter as long as you're doing it with someone who's okay with it. God would say that's not true. There are other people who would say, believe whatever you want. God is love. He'll understand. Just believe in something. That's all that matters. Number three, spiritual truth matters on Sunday, but not Monday to Saturday. So what we would talk about here or in some building is important for your spiritual life when you die and go to heaven. But really the stuff of everyday life, you just do whatever you want to do. Number four, there is no absolute truth. That is the number one foundation that United States culture is now built upon. Whatever you believe is fine. As long as you believe it and you really believe it, then who am I to tell you that your idea may not be correct? Number five, and this flows out of that, all religions are essentially the same. They teach the same thing at the core. Jesus is a way to salvation, not the way. Number six, you're all free to love Jesus and not the local church. John is going to talk a lot about that one. Number seven, our greatest problem is low self-esteem, not sinfulness. There are massive amounts of churches that are built on that premise. Your real problem is that you think poorly about yourself. And number eight, the presence of suffering and evil in the world in general and in our lives in particular must mean God does not exist. There are lots of people that walk away from the faith because some kind of hardship happens to them. And so there are some strands of teaching that would tell you, yes, walk away because that proves God's not real. God doesn't exist. Now, what ties all of those ideas together? Well, several things. They're, they're foundational beliefs that shape our culture. Correct? Uh, they're also incredibly dangerous and harmful. They're destructive. If you believe those things, you will walk your life into ruin. They're, they're dangerous lies. They're also tied together because some people believe them and assume them, and we can buy into them without even thinking through it. So that begs the question, how do we determine what truth is? How do you decide whether a particular historical event happened? How do you figure out whether Christianity is true or not? That's not the kind of thing we do very often. We stand at the microwave impatient. We don't slow down long enough to look at the assumptions that build and drive our lives. But if we did, what we would do is we'd look at evidence. 
I told you you're going to have to think today. Some of you are still awake and looking at this direction. Hopefully you're thinking. What we would do is we'd look at evidence. So here's three different scenarios that you might consider or someone might tell you this is the reason I believe. So think through this. If someone came up to you and said, with my own eyes, I watched Jesus die on the cross. I was there. I saw it. I witnessed it. I observed it. I watched them take his body down. I watched them put him in a tomb. Three days later, I went back, and it was empty. And then that same person, Jesus, showed up. I touched him. I heard him. I watched him for 40 days travel around and talk to people. And I know it was him because I lived with him. I learned from him. I ate with him. I traveled with him. I watched him heal and touch and weep. He answered my questions and opened my heart. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. Okay, that's one person. Now, a second. Yes, it's been 50 years since Jesus supposedly died, rose again, and went back to heaven. And yes, you've heard that he was God and man combined. And yes, it's true I didn't really meet him. I didn't know him. But I've been given a special knowledge from God. And this is really what happened. That's the second group. And here's a third. And this is what it's like today. Sure, 2,000 years ago, Jesus supposedly lived I know what you said and have heard, he thought, and what he meant, but let me tell you what's really going on, because all of those people back then were just idiots. They were backwoods, uneducated. They'd believe anything anybody put before them. That's the third. You have a choice of what you're going to think about Christianity. Nobody's going to force it upon you. You will decide what you will believe. How will you decide? It will fall in one of those buckets. Will you take, number one, the testimony of eyewitnesses, people who were there? That's what this book gives us. That's what John claims to be. Will you take the second group? This is the group that left the church. They said, yes, the eyewitnesses tell you this, but I'm going to tell you really what happened because I've got insider knowledge. I got it from God. So don't believe what was written in those books. Or will you take the third that just says, that was so long ago. How could we possibly know? And everybody was so superstitious then. They didn't even have running water. How could they possibly have known anything about God? Which one will you believe? How will you decide? Well, you decide by tracking down the truth, by going to eyewitness testimony, by understanding the assumptions of their life, and by making a decision about what's the most plausible explanation. John claimed to be one of Jesus' disciples. And he claimed not just that, he claimed to be one of the closest three. And he wrote to reassure people that they can have confidence about what they've heard. 
He wrote to clearly define what Christianity is. And so in our remaining time together, what I'd like to do is simply provide you with some of his foundational beliefs. Foundational beliefs are like the foundation of a home. You don't see the foundation, but everything's built upon it. It doesn't matter how fancy the paint on the walls is or what brand the hardwood floors are or how decked out your bathroom fixtures might be. If your foundation's messed up, then the house is going to be messed up. Anybody owned a home that the foundation went bad? No. If you lived in, there's a few. So uh, Jill and I are from Oklahoma, and everyone there essentially has a messed up foundation. The houses crack, you get big cracks in the walls, and then you have to pay a whole bunch of money to have somebody come and put piers under your house. So they literally drew down under, and you pay like two or $3,000 a pier to rebuild the foundation of your house. It's a mess. It's good you live here. Yes, it's near death hot most of the year, but your foundation is good. So think of your underlying worldview, the assumptions that you have about how life works, the things that you take for granted to be true that may or may not be true. Those are what I want to talk to you about. Without an understanding of John's foundational beliefs, the book of 1 John is incredibly difficult to understand because he talks very different than we do. He says, if you say you don't struggle with sin, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. We don't talk that way, but John does. And more importantly, John talked that way because God told him to. What would it be like, friends, for your life to be marked by words like this? Assurance, confidence, bold humility, sacrificial love, steadfast faith. Does that describe you? For many of us, our lives are more characterized by doubt, uncertainty, selfishness, and insecurity. Why? It's because your foundation is bad. The message of 1 John can provide you with spiritual confidence in an era of time where there's massive confusion and uncertainty about nearly everything. And so, here we go. Here are five truths that John built life on. They are things that changed him. And they are things that can change you true, too. Number one, there is a God and he is glorious. If you read 1 John from start to finish, what you'll find is that the apostle John was overcome with a grand vision of God. God was the center of his reality. For John, he could not make sense of life apart from the fact that there's a God and he's really amazing. Everything revolved around God and specifically God the Son. In this short little letter, 66 times John uses the word God. 
For him, everywhere he looked was God. God, 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 God. It wasn't when he gathered on Sunday morning that he thought about God. He thought about God all the time. Why? Because John understood life is about God. And so he lived a God-entranced life. And that was a very good life. And so as a result of that, he says things like 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God underst- John understood God to be good and pure and trustworthy and holy. 1 John 4, 8, he understood God to be this. God is love. We live in a time when atheism gets a lot of press. In the U.S., atheists are a very tiny minority. Now, you wouldn't know that based on the press that atheism gets, but it's an extremely small percentage of people that live in this country that believe there is no God. There are other places in the world where there's a lot more atheists. China, for example, has many, many, many people that would, from the moment they're born, be told there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. It's not that way here. Now, it's true that John doesn't argue for God's existence. If you read through the letter, in fact, if you read through everything John wrote, which is more than anybody else who wrote in the New Testament, never once does he say, here are the reasons you should believe God exists. I'm going to prove there is a God. He doesn't talk that way. It's simply assumed. Now that makes some of us nervous, doesn't it? It's okay to be honest in this room. It's true that we can't use the scientific method and prove God exists by repeating that something happened in the past. That's the way today we talk about proving what's true. I'll prove it's true by repeating what we're saying we believe. Now, it's true that we can't do that for God, correct? Don't be afraid of that. That's okay. You also can't prove by the scientific method that Abraham Lincoln existed. Does that mean you believe he didn't exist? Does that mean you sheepishly hide in the corner and say, yes, I believe in Abraham Lincoln, but I I don't want to say it because someone might tell me I'm silly. You don't have to hide in the corner when you talk about your faith simply because you can't prove it with the scientific method. Just because we can't reproduce the death of Jesus on the cross doesn't mean he didn't exist and didn't die for our sins. If we can't prove that God exists by the scientific method, then how should we talk about our faith with friends who are atheists? That's a question you ought to be asking yourself. Because there are people in your life who say they don't believe in God, correct? Well, this isn't the purpose of the sermon today, but let me just make a few suggestions to you. Talk kindly, lovingly, gently about that person's underlying worldview because it's largely assumed. They, They haven't probably taken the time to ascertain why do I think there isn't a God? 
In my experience, most people I've talked to that claim to be atheists, they're not atheists because they've sorted through the claims of Christianity or any other religion for that matter. They're atheists because they want to live life on their own. They want to be in charge. They don't want to submit to anybody. And so atheism is a way to do that. If I say there is no God, then I don't have to follow him. I went to a lot of school to figure that one out. Okay, so get at people's underlying worldview. Saying God doesn't exist is often code for something else. Now, that's not everybody, but that is often the case. We can lovingly appeal to people by asking them to consider the fact that there's something, not nothing. The Bible often talks about creation in that way. We can appeal to history. We can appeal to conscience, the right and wrong. We can appeal to the millions and millions and millions and millions of lives that have been changed by Christ. We can talk through all of those things, but ultimately, you can't argue someone into faith. So don't try. Live the gospel consistently before them. Help them question their underlying worldviews. Appeal to things that are helpful. And then, most importantly, pray. Pray, 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 pray. All right, I'd love to spend more time there, but we can't. Here's a second foundational truth that John built life on. While God can never be known fully, he can be known truly. For John, you never can exhaust everything there is to know about God, but you can know God. So John says Christians are people who know God, but he goes even further. He says we know each member of the Trinity. He said we know the Father, we know the Son, we know the Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? He did that because the false teachers had eroded the believer's confidence that they knew God. And so he tells them, Christians, you once were confident in the faith, and now you have lots of doubts. So let me, let me shore up your, your faith. Let me rebuild your foundation. Friends, I know it's not popular today to say this, but there is right and wrong. There is truth and error. There is correct and there's false. John wants you to know that God exists and God can be known. He wants you to have confidence in that. And so over the next several weeks together, we're going to consider some questions that he raises. Questions like this. Questions of doctrine. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that? Questions of morality. Do you aim to obey God's commands? Not do you live a a sinless, perfect life, but do you have a genuine desire to admit that you're a sinner and and want to quit sinning? Do you want to become more Christ-like? And then questions of ethics. Do you love the people of God? John would say, if you say yes, yes, yes to those things, then you can know and have confidence that you know God. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to question. God wants you to know that you know that you know him. He wants you to be fully convinced that he exists and that he loves you. John believed assurance is possible. And so he wrote this letter to offer that assurance. 
Friends, if you struggle with doubts or wrestle with fears or simply don't know what you think about God, then our suggestion as a church to you would not be, well, just take a blind leap of faith. Instead, it would be, find someone in this room and say to them, would you meet with me regularly and let's read 1 John together? And I'm not sure what I think about some of this stuff. And I'm not going to lie to you and by nodding my head when we read it. I'm going to say, I don't know about that. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to pray. We're going to read the letter together. And where we struggle, we're going to seek outside help and questions. And we're going to look at history together. Do you know it's okay to do that? Number three, John's going to tell us all kinds of ideas about truth and error. And he's going to do that based on the assumption that truth and error exist and that they're distinguishable, that you can figure out what is right or wrong. 1 John 2, 26 says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You can't be deceived if there's not something wrong. Correct? Now, John could have never conceived of a culture like ours. Our culture tells us there isn't right and wrong. There's simply personal preference. There's simply what you want to believe. And so when John says, I'm writing to you about people who deceive you, that's really confusing for us. Because the best wisdom today tells us what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. It tells us there are no absolutes. It tells us all truth is relative to the individual in the culture. We can't tarry there very long. But friends, we've often looked at that issue here. And the whole premise of that worldview falls on its own sword. Because saying there are no absolutes is a absolute. Number four, both beliefs and behaviors matter. They're inextricably linked. While you're entitled to your personal opinion, and you are, that doesn't mean you're right. And your behavior has to be congruent with your beliefs. In fact, John's going to go so far as to tell you things like this. You have to have confidence that you're personally saved. And your beliefs, certain beliefs must be affirmed and certain behaviors must be present or you should have no conviction that you know God. He's going to tell us that over and over and over. Those of you in the room who are engineers, and there was a bunch of you, John's going to drive you absolutely nuts. So I'll just warn you ahead of time. You like to follow thoughts that go like this. Correct? John's brain apparently didn't work that way. Because when John wrote 1 John, he doesn't do this thought leads to this thought leads to this thought leads to this thought leads to this thought. And that is true because I can track it right back here. He instead goes like this. He takes the batter 
the ingredients of truth and he swirls them all together. And what comes out tastes really good. But if you try to look at it like this, you're going to pull your hair out. So he, he's going to introduce an idea, he's going to massage it a little bit, and then he's going to go and take us over to something else. And then in a little bit, he's going to go back over here and tell us a little bit more. But all of that is built on his belief that the way you live your life matters. What you do with your body matters. And you can't claim to believe something here if these do something different every day. John's going to say those ideas don't go together. So let me show you an example of that. So look in your Bible at 1 John 1, verse 5. We read this a few minutes ago. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So he said for John, life is about God. God's good. God's pure. God's holy. God's awesome. Now for us, we can say that and say we believe it and then just go live a different way. But for John, that's impossible. Look at what he says next. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin. If we say we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What is he saying? He's saying, if I, if I say this, I believe in that God, a God of light, a God of purity, a God of holiness, but yet my lifestyle is such that I believe I can do anything and everything I want to do. Again, for us in 2014, that makes complete sense. But, but friends, it doesn't make sense. Because if that God's real and that God exists, then that changes everything over here. Not in order that I get to know that God, but because I do. He so dramatically changed me, I can't help but strive to obey him. Now jump over to chapter 4. You'll see another example of this. First John 4, verse 7. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love each other, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So for John, all of life was surrounded by, encompassed by the truth that God is love. For him, that wasn't this fuzzy, I can do anything I want to do because it doesn't matter anyway because God is love. And when I die because God's love, God will just welcome me into his presence. And it really doesn't make any difference what I do today because God is love. Friends, that's what we're told but John says no. Verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, what in the world is that word? Propitiation for our sins. I know you've used that one several times this morning already over bagels and coffee. It just means wrath taker. God sent Christ. Christ died to be the propitiation. He died to take the wrath of God that you deserve upon himself. It's a beautiful word. Verse 11, beloved, God loved us, so we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John draws a line in the sand. He does not mess around. And he says, if you've experienced the love of God, you are going to be a person who increasingly reflects that love into other people. If you are grumpy, angry, judgmental, if you have no affection for the people of God, if you're just fine to live your life however you want, then John says, you have very serious reason to question if you've experienced the love of God. Why would he say that? He says that because belief and behavior has to go together. We live in a really confusing time. We're told that it's possible to genuinely believe one thing and do another. Beliefs and behaviors are not readily linked. But throughout the letter of John, John says, Christians are people who have been born again, received the Spirit. They've been loved by God. And because of that, not in order to get that, your life's got to increasingly look more Christ-like. And so he says all kinds of things, like, You've got to practice the truth and walk in the light and confess your sins and obey God's commands and love each other and overcome the evil one and do the will of God and confess the Son, believe in Jesus. And if you don't hear anything else today, I hope you'll hear this. I fear there are some here today who think they're Christians, but they're not. You think because at some point you walked down an aisle or went to a confirmation class or got sprinkled on you or were born into a home where people went to church or come here often and give money and serve in some ministry. Is it possible to do all of those things and to have a heart that's dead, to have never experienced the love of God of course it's possible. How do you know? John says you look at your beliefs and you don't just look there. You look at your actions. Are my actions increasingly Christ-like? Do I want them to be? Or am I fine just doing whatever I want and playing church? Friends, that will lead you straight to hell. I'd urge you to reconsider your life. Finally, number five. For John, he understood the church to be a family. 
His vision of life is that the Christian life is a shared life. God is about saving a people, not mere individuals. His plan has always been to gather together a people who together in their diversity would reflect his incredible wisdom. Now in closing, what in the world do you do with this kind of sermon? This isn't the kind I like to do. So if you didn't enjoy it, I didn't either. The, the point of our teaching, any teaching, is never merely to educate you. We're not out to make you smarter. I have no interest in dispensing facts for you to affirm. I'm very interested in you taking truth, deeply considering it, prayerfully then realigning your life according to it. I don't think we can walk through 1 John and it makes sense apart from considering John's worldview. And a lot of those things that John would have believed, he didn't believe before Jesus died and rose again. That is the the linchpin moment of history. Would you consider these things today? Would you analyze your foundational beliefs in light of them? Do you agree with what we've said? Why or why not? Where you don't agree, what will you do to shore up those disagreements and reach good conclusions? Would you consider your own presuppositions in everyday life? Are they correct? Are they helpful? Are you becoming more Christ-like? Would you invite your gospel community or somebody else to disciple you in these conversations? And hopefully all of us, would you read 1 John? Would you read it often? We've chosen to walk through the book because we really believe it's a timely, important, urgent message. John says multiple times, here's why I wrote you. He says, We're writing these things so your joy can be complete. He says, I'm writing these things so that you would believe in the name of the Son of God, that you would know that you have eternal life. He says, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John gave lots of reasons why he wrote. Would you consider them? Would you not just assume what you've been told is right? Look at God's word. Don't do that alone. Do it in community. And where your life does not match up to the vision of life that God has for you, would you consider getting on your knees and turning from your thoughts to God's? Let's pray. God, there's a ton of content in this. We didn't just take one idea from a passage and analyze it and talk about it and look at objections to it and illustrate it like we normally do. But God, most of the assumptions of our culture are wrong. And 
and they're dispensed to us in mass quantities all day, every day. And it's incredibly easy to believe things that are false without even realizing we believe it. It's incredibly easy to build the foundation of our lives on sand. And invariably what happens is when the storm comes, that foundation gets eroded and life falls apart. It falls apart not because you're not good, not because you're not light, not because you don't love us, but because we've built our life on sand. God, if there's any here in the room today who have believed they know you, but they really don't, would you help them to see that? God, would they respond? Would they repent? Would they confess belief in Christ even now? God, there's others in the room who, who may not even believe you exist. I pray they'd have the courage to ask somebody to go through 1 John with them and really consider the evidence. God, I'm confident there's a bunch of us that think it's okay to believe one thing and do another. God, forgive us for that arrogance. May we be a church that is increasingly lining up what we believe and what we say. And God, thank you most of all that Jesus Christ came to be the propitiation. He came to take the wrath that we deserve. So we praise you and thank you that you died for us. And now as we leave, we want to live in light of your death and your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.